The setting was in a banquet hall in London, and the occasion was the honoring of some of Britain's religious leaders. Sitting at one of the tables was a medical missionary being honored, and by him was a lady trying to carry on conversation with him. Frankly, she was a little intimidated by this godly man who had made such a vital commitment to Christ. But she kind of stumbled along and said, Is it true, sir, that you are a missionary? And he looked at her a long moment and said, Is it true, madam, that you are not? Most of you know, I've shared it with you before, that I had a tremendous struggle for several years in my life concerning God's call to me as a career missionary, and I really wrestled with that for years. But I learned something as I worked through that sense of God calling me to career missions, and I've learned something since, I think, and that is this, that getting in a plane and flying across the ocean to some foreign land does not a missionary make. We are missionaries. When a person receives Jesus Christ, at that time he becomes a missionary. The word means to be sent. It means the sent ones. And so Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Being a missionary is a matter of what one is rather than what where one, where one is. I want you to imaginatively take a trip with me around the world. I mean, I want us just to take a mental trip this morning around the globe, and I want us to view some of the remarkable movements of the Spirit of God that are taking place in our world at this contemporary moment. The first place we would go would be Korea, that blessed land where believers get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and they go down to church to pray two or three hours before their daily chores begin. And the Spirit of God is moving in a scintillating way across that little land. In the city of Seoul, Korea, there is a church that boasts 250,000 members. And there are thousands of people coming to Christ and are joining that church every year. And we'll go to the Philippines where the Spirit of God is breathing a fresh breath over those lush green islands. And I'm told that there are churches out in the villages and the cities of the Philippines where hundreds of people are being saved every year and they've never had a pastor. And Billy Graham preached the Manila Crusade in the latter part of the 70s. And after that crusade was over, 60 churches began in the city of Manila and thousands of people have come to Christ there. And I want you to go with me to Red China when the Red Purge began several years ago, it seemed that Christianity would be extinct. And all of a sudden the Christians disappeared and the churches closed and the Bibles were destroyed. But what happened under that oppression was that the church went underground and in the oppression flourished. And when new evidence of freedom began, religious freedom in Red China, this mighty church that had grown underground began to come above the ground like a mighty army. And I've heard some people say that if this building were in some city in Red China of any size at all, it would be packed to the rafters every night. 
And they don't have any Bibles there. There's scarcely a Bible in Red China. But if people had Bibles like you and I in Red China, there wouldn't be a one gathering dust. They ponder over them and love them and long for the Word of God. And we'll move from Red China over in, into Europe and behind the Iron Curtain. Sure, there is oppression and persecution. And the churches behind the Iron Curtain are under tremendous pressure. But I read somewhere recently that God is doing something behind the Iron Curtain that is unprecedented in church history. And we'll be reading before too long of a movement of God behind the Iron Curtain, the likes of which we have never seen before. And I'm told that in Romania, the number of people who are converting to Christ is staggering. And if you went to some church in the major cities of Russia, Moscow, Leningrad, or Kiev, you'd have to get there hours before the appointed hour of worship, even to hope to find a seat. And before, long before the worship starts, the places in the aisles where people stand would be jammed to capacity and people standing out in the courtyard looking through the windows in bitter cold. And the services began much like our service. The preacher stands to give some word of greeting. There's a hymn or two and a prayer and then the sermon starts. In 20 minutes the sermon's over. The pastor sits down and you say that's the kind of church, the kind of pastor I've been looking for all my life. Don't be deceived. That's just the first sermon. After he sits down, there's more singing and the choir sings and the second pastor stands and he preaches for 20 minutes and he sits down. And then there's great hymn singing and the, and the choir sings a magnificent anthem and a prayer begins. And after that prayer, the main sermon starts. And Russian Christians feel cheated if he doesn't preach at least 45 minutes. And when he finishes preaching, he sits down and there's more singing and more praying. And then all of a sudden you begin to sense that the service is winding to a conclusion. And you glance at your watch for the first time and you realize you've been there for two and a half hours and some have been standing all the time. And moreover, they have services like that on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening and Tuesday evening and Thursday evening and Friday evening and they're always jammed to capacity. And you go with me to Africa, that continent that was once known as the dark continent. Do you know there are more Christians and Christian workers in Africa per capita than there are in Western Europe where the missionary movement began? And the growth of the church in Africa is three times the, the growth of the general population. And if the church continues with its same enthusiasm and evangelism in Africa by the year 2000, it will be the most Christian nation on this continent. And we'll come back to America and sadly, we'll sit in our churches that are half empty on Sunday morning. And we'll come to churches by the hundreds where there is no service on Sunday night and they're empty on Wednesday night. And when you recognize the marvelous movement of the Spirit of God upon these nations that I've mentioned and others that I don't even have time to note, the question just wants to raise its hand and demands an answer. And this is the question. What have these people found? What have they discovered that is bringing people to faith in Christ by the hundreds and how is God blessing these nations in such mighty ways and power? Obviously, it is not the facilities. They are deplorable. It is not the pastoral leadership. Most of them don't even have pastors. 
It is not because they have great missionaries. Some have been expelled and they're crying for missionaries to come with the gospel and take it out into the bush countries and out into the, into the villages. I, I know that this is a simplistic answer and perhaps it's just one of the many answers, but I believe it's the answer to the key question confronting the contemporary church in America in this time. And the answer is this, that somehow these people have a deeper sense of who they are and it means more to them. They have a greater grasp on the very fact that they themselves have been sent with the gospel of Jesus Christ into their various world spheres, a gospel of redemption and deliverance and love. They themselves are missionaries. And I believe un until the whole body of the church of Christ captures this and understands it, then most of our congregations are going to remain on dead center. The proposition then of this message is this, that we are, underline, are missionaries. And if that's the proposition of this text, what are its implications? I mean, what does it mean to be a missionary into your various world spheres, in your home, in your business, in your school? What does that mean? What's involved in that? In the first place, it means that we are persuaders. It means we are Christian persuaders. He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now when you hear that word, you might think of a Madison Avenue advertisement that kind of puts the pressure on, you know, to buy the product. Or you might think of manipulation. Or you might even think of that guy who grabs you by the lapel on the street corner and says, Brother, are you saved? Or you might think of those young people that are dressed kind of funny, that walk around in the airports, try to pin a carnation on your lapel. You might think of that. But the fact is that the main reason God has left you in, and, and has left me here in this world is that we might convince people to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Now you think about that for a while. Somebody's always asking me, especially as they deal with with the dying process of the elderly, why does God leave people on this earth? Why doesn't He take them on to heaven when they reach a, a, an age like that and, a, and, a, and they're limited and, 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 and uh, confined? Uh, perhaps you're listening by radio this morning and, and you're limited as far as even getting out of your bed and you're wondering why God leaves you here to linger on. Well, the only answer I can come to in, in all of that is this, that God leaves us here for one reason, that is to convince men and women to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And it may be the only way you are able to do that is by intercessory prayer. And that's the best way. And there's an example of it in the 28th chapter of the book of Acts. I was going to ask you to turn to that, but time is limited. But in that 28th chapter of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, it says, is persuading men and convincing them to believe on Jesus, and he uses the Old Testament. Now here's this man who is just urging people, begging people, persuading people out of the Old Testament to believe in Jesus Christ. Why is he doing that? Because he's absolutely convinced of the truth of it. And with all sincerity in his heart, he is urging them and saying, you need to stake your life on Jesus. 
Now, not everybody is persuaded. In fact, the next verse after verse 23 of that 28th chapter says that the people got up and walked out on him. And I had to smile when I, when I read that. And I thought of all those dreams I used to have on Saturday night that everybody went home after Sunday school, you know, or, or after the song service. You know, everybody got up and left, the ultimate rejection. I used to have those horrible dreams about that. When I read that, it kind of caused me to smile a little bit, brought back some of those memories. The Apostle Paul said, you can walk out on me if you want to. You're not rejecting me. You're rejecting Jesus. And the, and the builders have rejected the, head of the, the, the stone that has become the head of the corner. There's a man just like that over in Fort Worth, Texas, or was. His name was Monty O'Neill. Monty O'Neill grew up in East Texas on a farm. He was poor. His family almost starved to death. When he was in the sixth grade, he had to drop out of school and, and work on the farm so his father could take a job in town just to make ends meet. He learned more as a young man than most of us learn in a lifetime. When he got to the age of maturity, he moved to Fort Worth, Texas, over near the seminary. He built him a little house. He, he learned how to build. He was a carpenter. He built a little frame house. It was nice. Somebody wanted to buy it, so he sold it. Made a little money on it. Built another. It was nice. Somebody wanted to buy it. He sold it. And he just started building houses and selling them. And the store is the usual one. The, the, the poor farm boy in East Texas becomes a wealthy millionaire uh, businessman. But the real impact of Monty O'Neill's life was that he was a tremendous persuader of men to Christ. I mean, everywhere he went, he just bore witness to Jesus Christ. I mean, when somebody's filling up a filling at the, uh, his car at the service station, he'd witness to him. A waitress at the, uh, at the restaurant, he'd witness to him. People would come in to buy houses from him. He'd say, I almost forgot to ask you, have you built your home in heaven? And he'd lead them to Christ right there in his office, everywhere he went. He witnessed. One day a seminary student that uh, went into his office and said, Dr. O'Neill, Brother O'Neill, I wish um, you'd sometime be able to witness to my father. He said, I'll witness to him today. And the problem with that conversation was, that promise was that the conversation was taking place in Fort Worth and this boy's father lived in Sumter, South Carolina. He just reached over and picked up the telephone, called his wife, said, pack some things, I'm going to Sumter today. She said, you're going where? He said, I'm going to South Carolina. He got on the plane, flew to South Carolina, stayed three days, came back just to glow. And he, and he said, the first person I met in Sumter, South Carolina was the constable, and I led him to Christ, and he led this boy, this boy's father to Christ. And as the stories usually go, they're told like this, Monty O'Neill died early in his life, and the last thing he did before he lost consciousness was to witness to the nurse in the hospital. Now, I know all of us are not able to be another Monty O'Neill, and we hear all these stories, especially at revival time, just like that. We say, never, I can never do that, and I know it. For most of all of us have different gifts and different ways of ministry, and we have different ways of expressing our faith, but I tell you what, I tell you the truth, we can be surrendered to the Spirit of God to persuade men to Christ as best we can, and we're not doing it. To be a missionary is to be a persuader. To be a missionary is to be a lover. That was God's method and His motive. Why did God save us? Because He loved us. How did He save us? He loved us into salvation. And if you noticed in the text, the Apostle Paul said that this love is both out of control and under control. He said it's out of control. 
you, you say I'm I, you, you say I'm look mad, I'm crazy. You know, that's what they were saying about the apostle Paul. You're crazy, friend. You you've lost your head. I mean, you, you're stupid. He said, I'm I'm not crazy. I, I'm intoxicated with Jesus Christ. You say that I look foolish. I'm not a fool. I'm just in love with Christ, and this love is just oozing out the pores of my being. You know, love sometimes causes people to do things that look a little stupid. You, you can remember that, don't you? you? You remember that, don't you? I mean, when you just were madly in love and you did some of the craziest things. I was talking to a young couple not long ago and we were talking about getting married and in the course of the conversation, I was getting ready to marry them. We were going to go into the chapel and we were talking. They were sitting there on the, in the, in the, on the love seat there in my office. I found out he didn't have a job and she didn't have a job and they didn't have an apartment. They want to live with her parents for a while and, and, and no prospect, no money, nothing. And, and I, I just kind of, I looked at it and I said, what, are, what in the world are y'all getting married? And he's kind of snuggled up, you know, and got that kind of a silly grin. And he said, well, we love each other. Now, that seemed kind of crazy to me, you know, stupid. As, as, a, as a matter of fact, that didn't look stupid. That was stupid. I mean, that is crazy. Now, look at this guy. I mean, this man here that is in our text, the heir apparent of Gamaliel, the Pharisee of the Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, and he said over there in Philippians, as far as zeal is concerned, and you measure a Pharisee by his zeal, as far as zeal is concerned, I have more zeal than you all. And this man was on the way to the top in that ecclesiastical Jewish community. And all of a sudden, he just disappears. And when he comes back, he's a different man. He's, bragging, he's dragging a cross on his back across Asia Minor. And he's doing stupid things. Why, he's declaring that the gospel is to the Gentiles. Stupid, crazy things. And so they threw him in prison. And they rejected him and they stoned him. And he said, look at my face and you'll see the stigmata. Look at on my back and you'll see the wounds of the cross, the stigmata. You think I'm crazy. No, I'm not crazy. I'm in love. Well, he even sounded crazy. Listen to him. He said, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Spirit how I have deep sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart continually for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I'm willing to be separated from God. I'm willing to go to hell if they'll be saved. Now that's crazy. For these were the people that hounded him and hurt him and hated him. And he was praying, Lord, if it means taking me to hell separated from you forever. I'll be willing to do that if they'll be saved. You say, you're crazy. Paul said, no, I'm in love. Rudyard Kipling was riding on the same ship that William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, was on. William Booth was accompanied down to the loading dock by a group of horn-tooting, tambourine-banging uh, Salvation Army troops. And, and, and Kipling was appalled by it. He was just insulted by the sight of that. He thought that was the worst thing he'd ever seen. And when William Booth got on the, on the ship, he told him so. He said, I have never seen such a display so untasteful. That's appalling. And William Booth said, 
If I could win one more person to Jesus Christ, I'd stand on my hands and bang the tambourines together with my feet and may His tribe increase. A. Leonard Griffith calls this age the age of the shrug. And this is what he says. Listen to him. He said, why this nation is full of indifferent people who have been so sickened by the sight of suffering that they have put up a veneer of apathy to protect themselves. And our characteristic gesture is the shrug of the shoulders and our characteristic expression is, I couldn't care less. And maybe that's why Martin Luther King said, this generation may have to repent not merely of the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but of the appalling silence and indifference of the good people. And I say amen to it. The Apostle Paul said, you know why I look like a fool? It's because I'm in love with Jesus Christ and I'm a fool for His sake. It's love out of control. I don't know why I act like I do. I don't know why I preach with such gestures. You know, I don't know why that, except that I'm in love with Christ. And he says, love under control. He said, the love of Christ constrains me. Now notice that that's not a word that means my love for Christ constrains me. It's His love for me binds me, shuts me up. I can do no other thing, he said, but to be a minister of reconciliation because of His love for me. You know, um, you know, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. I'm just kind of thinking about that. You know, it seems to me that, that, that love is the, pl- it, that the church is the place where people find love. Jess Lair has an interesting little book entitled, I Ain't Much Baby, But I'm All I've Got. And in this book, he tells about this group of psychologists who interviewed us, hundreds of pious church folk I mean, they wanted the best church people they could find. They wanted to know what was going on down inside of them. And they interviewed them and questioned them. And they came up with an amazing discovery. They said, these pious church folk have these tremendous negative thoughts, negative attitudes toward blacks and Jews. But the most appalling discovery was that these pious church folk who were there every time the doors were open indicated a tremendous feeling of negative attitude toward their own brothers and sisters in the same congregation. And so the little boy walked past four churches to get to the downtown church. Somebody asked him why and he said, well down there at that church they love little boys. Church ought to be where love is found. We're lovers. Third, now I'm going to hurry. You think, you know, you may think we're in Russia, you know, time we get through. We're going to be there in just a minute. Hang on. What does it mean to be a missionary? It means that we're demonstrators. We're demonstrators. He, he said, we have been given the ministry and the word, both two different ways he says it. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation and we have been given the word of reconciliation. That is, that we are demonstrators of the word and expressors of the word of reconciliation. We demonstrate His reconciliation, His salvation by the reconciled life. Our lives ought to be the evidence of what recreation means. 
So that if someone came to your neighbor and said, can you tell me what recreation means? Can you tell me what the new birth means? That neighbor would say, I don't know how to explain it, but I'll come over here, I'll introduce you to my neighbor. He's a perfect example of it. Our lives ought to be gentle and gracious and abundant. It's the only proper setting for the remarkable work of Christ. Now, now I know that we are to be urged we are to urge people and persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ. But that urging of our lips must, be, must, must rest upon the foundation of the urging of an authentic life. If I try to, to, to persuade you to believe in Jesus and I'm not living that authentic Christian life, it's like a bald-headed man trying to persuade you to buy some tonic that's guaranteed to put hair in, on your head. I mean, while you're listening to him, you're thinking, if that's so hot, why don't it work on you? And so while I'm trying to urge you to believe in Jesus Christ, if I'm not living an authentic Christian life, what you're wanting to say is, if that's so hot, why doesn't it work on you? So that our life, our living becomes the foundation, but not, not the excuse for, not, not the substitute for our verbal witness. And so Jesus said, let your light so shine before your fellows that seeing the good they, that you do, they glorify your Father who is in heaven. And a long time before I knew that verse was in the Bible, I used to sing at church where I went. Your life's a book before their eyes, they're reading it through and through. Say, does it point them to the skies? Do others see Jesus in you? So that how we live becomes the foundation and not the substitute for our verbal witness. For when the good news of Jesus Christ takes on flesh and blood in the daily experience, then the words of Christ become exciting and dynamic and powerful. If you know somebody who is so alive that they're vital, they just vibrate and they're vibrant, then you want to listen to him. When I see self-giving love in action in daily relationships, then the words, God loves you, God loves me, becomes, become believable. But we have been given not only the ministry of reconciliation to demonstrate, but the word of reconciliation. Listen, folks, you have the word you can declare to this world. Listen, the war is over. Be reconciled to God. Well, what are we talking about? I mean, what, 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 is, what is our conversation? The other day I decided, you know, what, what are folks, I was going to use this in an illustration, what, what are folks talking about when they get together? I decided I'd just eavesdrop and listen. So while I was in line down here getting ready to get my steak, I was listening to folks talk. And when I was sitting at the booth, I was, you know, just keeping my ear to the ground, listening. And I've just kind of just been taking a mental... Uh, survey what people are talking about. You know what folks are talking about? They're talking about dieting. That's all we talk about. <laughs> I mean, I've learned more about cottage cheese and, uh, and, and, and lettuce and tomatoes and, and jogging. I mean, it seems like it's, it, that the whole conversation that everybody is, is using now is, is how much we are overweight and how we can lose it. Now, I've heard a lot of it, but I had not pied it yet but I've sure been listening to it. I mean, we're talking about that and we have been given the word of reconciliation. Look, folks, we have a word to declare. 
the word is, the war is over. and God has reconciled us to himself. There's one last thing that we are as missionaries. We are ambassadors. What is that? An ambassador is a person who's in another country where they're speaking a different language and they're living by a different culture and he's representing his country there. An ambassador is a, in a foreign land and he speaks for his country. Listen, folk, you and I, you and I, have, have, we are spokesmen for, for the Lord. We have that authority. He's a person who does business in another country and he has authority. Authority. And so Jesus got his disciples together and he said, I'm giving you authority in the earth. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven so that you and I have the authority of God as his ambassadors. While I watched the Northeast dig out of a snowstorm, I looked at some familiar streets in Philadelphia that we were just riding up and down and visiting this last summer on our trip to, the, to Philadelphia. It brought back some happy and wonderful memories. The thing that impressed me most about that trip, I think, and what happened there was this, that when we begin to identify and get to know those children, those street kids, we, we, to, to, to them, we were just absolutely, you know, strange folk. I mean, we might as well have been from Mars. <laughs> we, we were coming from a totally different world than they had ever known or ever seen. I mean, it, just, it was just apparent. And they talked to us about it. We wore different clothes. We spoke a different language. We had, our kids had, you know, happy home lives. They had mothers and daddies who loved them. And, and those kids just, they just marveled at it, you know. And they couldn't believe that, that we could, just, you know, just come and just all of a sudden be in their midst. And, and it's just like being from another country, another continent. And they wanted it so badly. They were so attracted to it. They needed it so much. They were so hungry for it that when we started to leave, they got on the bus and wouldn't get off. And what they were saying is this. You've come from somewhere I want to go. You are somebody I want to be. You have something I want to have. And that country or whatever we call it, from whence we came was so appealing to them they were willing to come home with us without even packing their bags. And it seemed to me that that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about right there in that text. That we can be so much, so uniquely, so appealingly like the God we represent and the land, the temple where He dwells, that just to be in our presence is to cause people to say, you come from somewhere I want to be. You have something that I want to have. That's what it means to be an ambassador. Folks, we are missionaries.
And when we start acting like it, when we start acting like it, we're going to see the impact forever on this earth. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we hear your word today. We sense your presence. To us has been given the ministry, the word of reconciliation, so that we appeal to others as God himself appealing through us, be you reconciled to God. And Father, every time this pastor stands here in this place, there seems to be in me, Father, that, that feeling of total helplessness and inadequacy to urge people to something so vital. And aware, Father, that our community needs so desperately this word, this salvation, the only way this community will ever know it will be for us to be missionaries where we go, where we are. I pray, God, that you'll move on our hearts now concerning that decision you'd have us to make concerning this word today. Because I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now listen carefully to these invitations. There will be three invitations this morning. Listen carefully. The first invitation is for you to come to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There hasn't been a word said this morning about joining a Baptist church, and there will not be a word said about joining a Baptist church until we say to you, you need to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You need to invite Him into your life. You need to repent of that life where you have been in control and surrender the control of your life to the Lord, resurrected and living Lord, and accept Him as your Savior. Receive His gift that He purchased for you when He died at Calvary. And by faith you come to claim that gift for yourself. You come to trust Jesus Christ and make that vital commitment to Him. The second invitation this morning is for you to commit your life to career missions. Right in the midst of the spring with no missionary emphasis except the WMU Focus Week. I urge you this morning, if God is calling you to career, full-time career, in Christian service that you commit your life to that today. The world is waiting eagerly, longing for the coming of the sons of God, for people who say, I feel God calling me to a career in church-related work, missionary, pastor, whatever. The third invitation is for you to commit your life to be a missionary where you are to surrender to the Spirit of God to become what God has already made you in your home to be a better Christian father to lead your children to Christ or out in your school to be a better Christian 
to be an ambassador there, to represent Christ there in your business, in your work, whatever. To say, I'm not really that committed to God and His will for my life, but I want to make a public commitment to that today. These are our invitations. Our choir will sing our invitation song. We invite your response while we stand. You come.